Um, in an attempt to discover what uh, Sunday school kids thought about going to heaven, a Sunday school teacher once asked a few questions. And he said to the kids, if I sold lots of stuff, if I sold my car, sold my house, had a big garage sale, and I gave all the money to the church, would I go to heaven? And the kids all went, no! Good answer. And I said, well then, if I clean the church, if I keep everything neat, go on the rosters, do the morning tea, will I go to heaven? No, said the kids. Well then, if I was kind to the animals and I kept the Ten Commandments, would I go to heaven? And again, they all shouted, no! He said, well then, how can I go to heaven? And the boy in the back row put his hand up and he said, you've got to be dead. <laughs> and most people would agree with that, that you know, death is a prerequisite. But that's where the speculation begins. What happens next? I want to chat with you this morning about your friend. Uh, your friend who is pretty sure that good people go to heaven. See, that, that idea has been around for ages. The ancient Egyptians, the ancient Chinese, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, they all had a version of good people go to heaven. It's not a new idea. And it's still very popular today. It's what most world religions today actually promote. If you look into the doctrines, the tenets, and the beliefs of most world religions, it's about this is what you need to do. We will give you advice on how to do it well. Yet despite its immense popularity and its century-long standing, I don't think people really test it. I know a lot of my friends who actually hold this idea that good people go to heaven. I've got family who hold this idea. I'm sure you've got a friend who holds the idea and they're banking their eternal destiny on an idea that they never test. They've never tested it. I was recently at my uncle's funeral. Uncle Norman... 93 years old when he died. Uncle Norman was the uncle everybody needed to have, I reckon. Norman lived with my mum and dad longer than I did. Um, Norman was always there. In, in all my memories of being at home, Norman featured. Norman was not a Christian, not a believer. Norman was an Aussie bloke. You could tell what sort of night Norman had by the angle his car was parked against the curb. Norm was the guy who taught me how the TAB worked and how to place a bet. Norm was the guy who said, if you've had too much to drink, just have another one. Norm was the Aussie battler bloke who worked for the railways. Norm, when he died, every person at the funeral said how good he was. And I looked at my brothers and I said, did they know him? Now, Norm wasn't evil. Uh, Actually, let me tell you something. When Norm was 91, the local minister took him through Mark's gospel and he became a Christian at 91. And as I said to him, mate, that's skin of your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we keep going. Most people at that funeral, most people that I know who are not Christians have an idea 
that good people will go to heaven. So thinking of your friend, thinking of my friends, how do you start a conversation with them? What might you say? I wonder if you might have an opportunity to ask them, have you really tested that idea? Have you really thought that through? Because in my experience, most people haven't. And maybe they're too busy. They're too busy with work, uh, with career, with falling in love, having kids, whatever. But I wonder if it's because the Sunday school kid was right, that if you're going to test this theory, you've actually got to consider your death. And that's something we don't want to do. You don't go there. Let's face it, no one wants to think about their own death. Now, your friend and my friends are probably like most Australians. Uh, McCrindle did some research. Uh, I've got a slide of the, the report that Mark McCrindle did of faith and belief in Australia. You can access this online, just Google that and the report's there for free. He's a very generous man. And um, what you find as you go through it is most Australians believe that everybody lives forever. Nearly 90% of Australians believe that we exist for forever. So I don't know where the atheists are going. There's still a couple of them around. But basically, there's a belief in Australia that we exist forever. Our souls and our spirits go somewhere. And most people believe that that somewhere is better. Interesting, in his research, only about 30% of people believe there's a hell. And all of them go to church. <laughs> in other parts of the world, especially Asia, the beliefs are slightly different. Uh, the prevailing belief is that the soul comes back and goes around again. You get another lap. You, know, um, you get to start over. Hopefully, as someone slightly better or something better. Uh, in other parts of the world, there's a belief that we join our ancestors and that the ancestors actually remain part of the family and they intervene in family affairs. That's a spooky idea, isn't it? And they intervene especially if they haven't received enough honour. And so in countries where ancestor worship is the prevailing idea, you'll find people honouring graves and honouring ancestors so that they won't stick their beaks into what's going on tomorrow. Yet despite all the differences, all the nuances and all the different things the religions of the world have to share, there is this one common denominator. How you live your life now will determine what happens next. And the take home, it's on the next slide, is behave yourself now and you won't need to worry. That's basically what's behind the doctrines, tenets, and beliefs of most religions and philosophies in the world. And all of them provide very good advice, at least what they think is good advice, on how you can behave yourself now. Lots of people think that's what church is about. Come in and we'll tell you how to behave. And then one day we'll all wander off into heaven together. But that's not the Christian message. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not good advice. I mean, what is good anyway? On the next slide, I've got four different things. What, what is good? And what's good enough? 
ask your friend to test this theory of good people go to heaven because is there a pass mark on what's good? Is it 50%? And if I get 49, that's a real bummer, isn't it? I mean, 49, come on! Give me a conceited pass. Can't we just creep over? Do I have time to counterbalance the good for all the bad I've done? Maybe you could ask your friend those questions. But pick your time. Because as I said, the kid at the back was right. A lot of people don't consider this until they're facing death. And if they've experienced the death in their family, if they've experienced a friend or a loved one that they've lost, raising this, it's a very tender topic. Be careful. Be compassionate. Just gently ask for them to consider what is good? What would be good enough? And how would you ever know? It's a very good question, but you know what? The Bible never, ever asks it. It never, ever asks what's good enough. But it does answer the question. Now, what I want to do with you is go to the beginning of Mark's gospel. Um, let's put it up on the screen. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark begins. And here's where Christianity is different. Christianity is not good advice. It's right there in that first verse. It is good news. It's the gospel. Other religions have good advice. Christianity is good news. And it introduces us, Mark introduces us to Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not his surname. That's his title. That's his role. That's his identity. That's what he does. He is the Christ. I'm Chris the bishop. Uh, Gavin is Gavin the pastor. Jesus is Jesus the Christ. And Christ comes from a Greek word which means the anointed royal figure. It's the way the Jewish people referred to the Messiah, the one who would come, the one who would rescue God's people, the one who would be the king for God's people. And did you notice when Mark begins in his uh, chapter 1 verse 1, he says this is the gospel, the good news about this king. The word gospel is actually another tricky word. You, you noticed it was translated in our reading as the good news. That's because in English, gospel is best translated as good news. Being in Sweden, let me tell you, there's lots of things that we lose in translation. Um, here's a concept for you that we don't have. I don't think there's an, uh, an English equivalent. Lagum. You know lagum? Lagum. Uh, we learned this while we're having a meal with our Swedish family. Lagum, not too much, not too little. And so in, in Sweden, it's polite not to have too much food and not to provide too little. Now, that really clashes against the way I was brought up. Chris, eat your vegetables. Chris, eat your... Well, actually, I never had to be told, eat your meat. Chris, eat your vegetables, all of them. And if the plate wasn't clean, stay until it is. In Sweden, lagum, you don't eat everything. You've got to leave something on the plate. If you don't, if you eat everything, then your host has come put something more on the plate. So I'm there wiping out the plate and the host has come bringing more food. <laughs> the 
There's no English equivalent for lagum. It's a great idea, though, let me tell you. But there's no English, no, gospel. Good news is a weak translation, to be honest. Let me explain to you what the gospel is. Uh, you probably remember the Battle of Marathon. Oh, no, of course you don't. Persia invaded ancient Greece, and they made all the Greeks slaves. The Greeks rose up against the Persians. They fought battles, and let me tell you, an angry Greek soldier in the ancient world, that was something to behold. They fought, they fought valiantly, and they won the Battle of Marathon. And when they won the Battle of Marathon, messengers were sent out from the battle to all the towns, the villages, and the cities to tell people, we won! You know what the messengers were called? You'll love this. Evangelists. Evangelists. You know why? Because they were bringing the good news, the gospel, that victory had been won and that they were no longer slaves. They were free. That's gospel. That's evangelism. Telling people the victory has been won. You are no longer slaves. You are free. That's why Christianity is good news and not good advice because it's about a victory that's been won a freedom that is certain, not advice on how to live. It's a completely different message. It's what Jesus has done in history for us. He's opened the way for us so we can go to heaven, but it's not based on what we do, but on what he has done. Other religions, other beliefs will give advice. How does it feel when you get given good advice? I remember going to a conference one and introduced to Fred Hollows. I've got a picture of Fred. I don't know if it's next. Yeah, there he is. Do you remember Fred Hollows? An amazing man. He did amazing things. Like he's a, a brilliant surgeon. He brought sight to so many people who would have otherwise been blind. He was, and so this example of this great one was given at this conference I went to on how to live, how to establish well-being and resilience. And look at Fred Hollows, what an example. Now, how did I feel having been given the example of how to live a good life? I was inspired. I loved the story. I was thrilled by what he did. It was amazing. It was incredible. I was in absolute awe. But did I feel the same way as the Greeks did when they heard the evangelist come and say, you're free? No, I didn't. What I felt was a weight come on me to be better than me and to be more like Fred. That's not the gospel. That's good advice. Did I feel my burdens fall off? No, I didn't. I realized I'm a mediocre man. My friend Keith many years ago said to me, Chris, you are, so, you are mediocre, mate, in every way. I mean, you play the guitar, you're not a musician. You paint pictures, you're not an artist. You ride your bike, you're not a cyclist. You are just mediocre. He was right. He's pretty right. So when I, mediocre man, have to be like Fred, it's an incredible burden. Contrast that with Christianity, where Jesus says, I have won the battle. I have opened the gates. Come to me. You who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. It's good news, not good advice that we need. It's the victory we need to understand, not here's another rule, here's another thing, here's another obligation. We need good news. 
Maybe you could tell your friend that. Explore what they think is good enough. And then consider Jesus. And that's what I do as I finish. Let's consider Jesus. We haven't really looked enough at the Bible. So I want to go to the Bible now. Now, here's a quiz because you probably, it's 28 degrees. I saw the temperatures I pulled up and we're all lulling off into that la-la land and Chris is going, oh, oh, oh. So here's something you need to engage. This is, this is interactive church. In the four Gospels, there are three things in all four. Three events in Jesus' life in all four Gospels. What are they? You can't answer, you've heard the sermon. What are they? Three things. Oh, yeah, Peter. Crucifixion, absolutely. The passion, in fact, let's extend it back a bit, uh, where Jesus goes into the garden and then he agonizes the arrest and the crucifixion and resurrection. So in all four Gospels. Very, that's one. There's two more. Down the back. Feeding of the 5,000, absolutely right, that's right. That is in all four Gospels. Good Samaritan's not, it's, in, it's not in all four. Okay, so, but the feeding of the 5,000, it is. And another one, come on, it was a Bible reading this morning. Karen, you should know this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the baptism of Jesus in all four Gospels. Now, why is it? that they thought these three things are so important, we've got to put it in. You've got to ask yourself that. There's lots of things, there's lots of other things that are in the Gospels. Why did they all put these three in? The baptism, the feeding, and the passion. It's because those three things show you Jesus. They show you who he is, his power, and his personality. We haven't got time to look at all three now. I just want to look at uh, the first and the last, the baptism and the resurrection. Let's go to those. Uh, the baptism first. Here's a message from the baptism. Now, one of the things in my role that I, <coughs> that I get to do is I see kids baptised every single week. I see young people, young adults and, and older adults coming to faith in Jesus and being baptised, which is wonderful. I, I, I love it. I don't want it to stop. But this tendency they have now to jump in a tank to do it, even in the middle of winter, is just beyond my head. I don't get it. Um, you don't have to, to be baptized, but they've got all these people. So I say to them, why, why do you want to jump in the tank? Because it's like Jesus. Oh, no. no. Now, I, I don't discourage them. I try to be patient, Chris, rather than cranky, Chris. And I say, actually, Jesus' baptism was quite different. But knock yourself out, jump in the tank. Um, I want to show you how Jesus' baptism is different. When Mark introduces us to this, he says, John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance. You only need to repent when you sin. Jesus didn't sin. He was not there for a baptism of repentance. So what was going on? Why was he there? Get your Bibles. Come with me. 1 Samuel chapter 10. I think it's page 236 in the Bibles in the seats. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. There it is on the screen. The first king of Israel, whose name was Saul. Very good. First king of Israel. Let's look at what happened with him. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, he's anointed by the prophet. The prophet Samuel anoints him and says, he's the king. Then, 
in 1 Samuel 10, same chapter, but 10, verse 10, the Spirit comes upon Saul in power. The Spirit of God comes upon him. And then in 1 Samuel 11, verse 11, you can jot this down and check with it later and see what I'm, where I'll get this from. Saul goes out and does battle and he wins. Okay? Anointed, the spirit, a battle. Let's go to David because he was the next king, right? Go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. What happens? He's anointed by the prophet. Same verse, the spirit of God comes on David. Next chapter, chapter 17, what happens? David goes out and fights Goliath. See the pattern? Anointed, the spirit, a battle. Go to Jesus' baptism in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What happens? He's anointed by the prophet. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus is anointed by him with water in the River Jordan. The spirit descends on Jesus. All of them say like a dove. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness and does battle. Do you see what Mark is doing? Do you see what Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are all doing? They're saying he's the king. This is the king. They've already said he's the Messiah. But in case you missed it, anointed spirit battle. Do you not get it? Saul, David, the way kings are appointed is in this process. Jesus is the king. Why am I getting excited about that? All four Gospels say that the good news is about this king. It's not good advice we need. We need to know the king. So let's go to the end, uh, to the passion. Uh, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 14 in the garden and a lesson from the garden. Matthew records Jesus' words and he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What's happening for this king here is mind-blowing. And yet we're so familiar with it, aren't we? I, I want you to address the familiarity of this. You, you need to see some of the detail that maybe, because it's familiar, you've missed. It's a bit like wallpaper. You know, you, you become so used to it, you miss what's really there. It's, it's like a new hairstyle that your wife gets. You know she's done something different, but you can't quite work out what it is. <laughs> So when we go to the garden, we, we know, yeah, the disciples are asleep, yada, 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 Jesus prays, yada, yada, yada. But actually, there's more happening than that. And again, there's a word that's used by Mark that we can't translate into English. Uh, the Bible writers say he was deeply distressed. Let me say, what's behind that is he was absolutely astounded, shocked. He, was, he, he wasn't expecting this. Yeah, that's hard for us to conceive. How could Jesus, who knows everything, be surprised by what's going on? It's because the wrath of God is taking on a reality that he hadn't expected, which is why he prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Because he's absolutely taken by the wrath that is about to fall on him. Take it away. And the cup, it's not just the, the cup is judgment. 
Remember Socrates? Well, maybe you don't. Let me tell you about Socrates. He came up with some theories and some ideas, and the people hated him for it, so they condemned him to death, and they gave him a, a poison chalice to drink. That was the judgment. Common in the ancient world. The cup was judgment. What Jesus drinks is the cup of judgment, the cup of God's wrath. He's not only about to face physical death, he's about to receive the wrath of God for all sin of the entire world. John Edward, Jonathan Edwards, no relation, wrote a great sermon about this scene. It's called Christ's Agony. Google that, it'll come up. It's a good read. And what he does is he imagines that the disciples could have looked, sorry, that Jesus could have looked at the disciples and he imagines him saying to the Father, why should I do it for them? I've been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of your love. Why should I cast myself into torment for them? They could never pay me back. They can't even stay awake. Why should I do it? They haven't enough love for me. Why should I do it? And then Jonathan Edwards says he never said that. Instead, he said, your will be done. Remember, Jesus didn't just die the death we should have died. He lived the life we should have lived. Robert Murray McShane, a great preacher and writer, a Scotsman, said he's not just a dying saviour, he's a doing saviour. When we believe in him, we don't just get the benefits of his death. We also get the benefits of what he did, his doing, his obedience, which means, and here's the really good news. This is where Christianity is so different. What happens is I am given the righteousness of Jesus. I am given the obedience of Jesus. I am given the goodness of Jesus. When God looks at Chris Edwards, right, when he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at me, he sees the obedience of Christ. When God looks at me, he sees the goodness of the King, the Messiah, the one anointed, empowered, and who did battle. For me, is that not good news? When your friend thinks that good people go to heaven, I wonder if you might be able to say, you know what, I think there's another way. Let me show you the King Jesus. John finishes his gospel with these words, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not being good. It's believing in the one who is good and trusting him, not trusting yourself. I hope that you'll get an opportunity to chat to your friend because most people believe that being good will get them there and it won't. Amen.